Hi, this is Amanda Dolan and welcome to The Mental Society. Today I am joined by Lee Wind. Lee writes stories to empower kids and teens to be their authentic selves and change the world. These are the same books that he would have loved to have read and would have changed his life as a young gay Jewish kid. His debut picture book, Red and Green and Blue and White, was illustrated by Caldecott medalist Paul O. O. Zelzinski. I hope I say that right. Um, and it received a five-star trade review. Um, and the New York Times praised it as beautiful. It's a message the world can use throughout the year. He's also the author of a nonfiction book, No Way, They Were Gay, Hidden Lives and Secret Loves, and the novel Queer as a $5 Bill, because Abraham Lincoln's on the $5 bill and he wasn't exactly straight. Um, and he also runs a popular blog, I'm Here, I'm Queer, What the Hell Do I Read? Um, and is the official blogger for the children or for the Society of Children's Books, Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Man, I cannot get all these words out and the Queer Kid Lit Creators Community Organizer. And Lee is joining us all the way from um, Los Angeles, where he lives with his husband of over 25 years. I'm so excited that you're here because I'm I'm fascinated by all the like, oh, they were gay moments that I had. Um, and I tend to consider myself a pretty well-educated person. And I took the quiz on your website and... Um, I didn't do well. It was a little embarrassing, honestly. So thank you so much for being here with me. Oh, thanks, Amanda. I'm really excited to be here. And the point of the quiz isn't to shame people. It's it's more to kind of be like, wow, really? Our educational system didn't do such a stand-up job here. <laughs> and so many things when I talk to my kids who are in middle school and high school, I'm like, that's that's what they taught you? Like, that's how that came out. And so um, it, I think that this is just like, this is so Im important. So why was this so important for you to write? Well, I mean, I grew up the child of immigrants. My parents uh, came to America before I was born from Israel. And uh, I was born here and sort of raised, you know, I was raised in America, but it was very homophobic. Um, you know, the, the, the 70s, the early 80s. Um, and, uh, and my parents sort of brought a bunch of their homophobia with them from their from their culture, right, for that had come from Eastern Europe, uh, that had gone to Israel. Um, and, you know, it just became very, very clear to me when I came out when when I came when I realized that I was attracted to other guys. Um, probably around age 11, I realized almost at the same moment that I couldn't share my truth with my family, that that if I did, I could lose their love. I could, I like, it just felt too dangerous, too unsafe. So I was in the closet from age 11 to age 25. And I look back at that time in my life with a lot of sadness. I don't have any friends from elementary school or middle school or high school. I, I honestly only have one friend from college and it's someone I reconnected with after I came out. Um, it's sort of like I spent all this time pretending and being inauthentic 
and sort of acting and being who everybody told me I was supposed to be. And I kept, I, I dated women and I, and I kept kind of hoping that the feeling would come and it didn't. And um, I knew I wasn't feeling what I was supposed to feel. And it just, it was very hard. And I finally got honest with myself and with others and with my family. They were the last. And uh, and then my life kind of started at age 25. In a funny way, I felt like I was a teenager all over again, emotionally. And I've been very blessed in, in my journey. Uh, about, I don't know, 10 years after coming out, I went to a talk uh, and this guy was talking about the letters that Abraham Lincoln wrote Joshua Fry Speed that convinced him that Abraham Lincoln was in love with this other guy. And I was like, what? I've never heard of, wait, how, what, what? So anyway, I couldn't get it out of my mind. And I just thought this guy's making it up. This can't be possible. But I went to the library and I got a book. Um, and I, I've always thought history was really boring. I mean, I grew up in history, it was sort of taught like medicine. It was names and dates to memorize. And it was right. dry, 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 dry. And it never had anybody like me. And I just, so I got this book on Lincoln from the library. And even though I was interested, I was so like, you know, whatever. So the, the first half of the book was like, you know, the, the author talking about Lincoln. And I was like, I don't care. I flipped to the back of the book. The whole second half of the book are the letters, the reprints of the letters that Abraham had sent Joshua. Um, turns out we don't have a lot of the letters that Joshua sent Abraham because Mary Todd burned them. Um, so I was like, okay, here are the letters. This is the, this is the primary source stuff that this guy was talking about. And I just was like, I couldn't even start reading them chronologically. I was just like, I randomly flipped it open <laughs> and I started, and I started reading and it was a letter that Abraham wrote Joshua. Um, they had lived together for four years. Uh, and then Joshua moved back to Kentucky and married a woman named Fanny. And this letter in particular was written eight months later. And Abraham, the line I, I got to, like almost like landed on was, are you now in feeling as well as judgment, glad that you're married as you are. From anybody but me, this would be an impudent question not to be tolerated, but I know you'll tolerate it from me. And then Lincoln ends with by saying something like, I'm very impatient to know, please respond to me quickly. I, I read that, Amanda, and I got goosebumps because it was exactly how I felt. I judged it the right thing to do, but I didn't feel it. I wondered would the feelings come. Uh -huh. We don't have the response, but we do know it was less than a month later that Abraham married Mary Toddler. Um, so like that for me huh. was the beginning of being like, what? And I just started going on this journey of trying to trying to find out, is this real? Like, did, did, was Abraham really in love with Joshua? And there was so much evidence in the letters. I mean, and when people talk about like, well, was this, was this man in love with another man in history? they go all CSI. They're like, well, do you have DNA proof that they did the nasty? And I'm like, I don't even <laughs> care what they did. Uh, it's just, you know, uh, physically, what I'm really interested in is did they love each other? Because look, I can't go back. And I think it's kind of prurient and weird of our culture that we're all, it's all about sex. And actually, this is one of my things. I always joke, like if I had a two minute TED talk, I would say that the word homosexual is not helpful um, because it makes everybody 
focus on how queer people have sex rather than if we had if we focused on love like the thing that holds me and my husband and our teenage daughter together as a family is love which is the same thing that holds everybody else's family together so if the word was homo lovable if we were talking about homo lovable history and homo lovable mm -hmm. rights i think we've been having very different cultural conversations okay that's my ted talk um so <laughs> i actually i like that i mean i don't i like that thought process yeah, I mean, like words are really powerful. And in a lot of ways, we've bought into this word that really reduces us as a queer as a queer community to how we have sex rather than all the the, the humanity that we share with everybody else that's human. Um, so I just got really into all the research and I just found more and more and more evidence. And I was like, you know, this would make kind of a cool novel. So I, I wrote a, a novel about a, a closeted kid who is inadvertently dating his best friend who's a girl and discovers, these, discovers the same letters from Lincoln that I saw and realizes that if he can out Abraham Lincoln as a man who loved another man, he might be able to change the whole world. Um, but it just kind of blows up in a giant media firestorm and conservative backlash. And so that's sort of what the book is about. Um, so that's Queer's $5 bill, because yes, indeed, Lincoln is on the $5 bill. And for those listening that don't know, there's an old timey expression that when something was really weird, it was queer as a $3 bill. Um, because you know, queer not. was sort of, right, because there isn't a $3 bill. Exactly. So um, Queer's a $5 bill. That was, uh, that was, I'm very, I'm very, very proud of that title. I, but as I, I was, thanks. As I was writing the novel, there was just so much evidence about Abraham and Joshua, and I wanted to write a page turner. And I, you know, and I did a bunch of cool things because I actually crowdfunded the book and then published it myself. I mean, I hired a team of editors and other people, right. to, designers, to help me do it really professionally. But like, all the primary quotes are in bold in the book, and then there's a very extensive endnote section. So. Um, you know, the, all the stuff that the main character Wyatt discovers about Lincoln and Joshua are, are true. And not all of it's great. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln, you know, we try to we try to make things very black and white in our in our mm -hmm. in our culture. Um, and there was a lot of gray there. I mean, he was not a perfect person. Um, and I think that it's almost like we're afraid to let kids know that, like, OK, he was kind of a racist. I mean, yes, yes. Emancipation Proclamation, but at the same time, like he wanted to, at oh. one point, he wanted to like ship all the black people back to Africa. Like he wasn't, he, he wasn't, wasn't this perfect person. Like he wasn't that person that we see on the pedestal or that we like have or created. Or Mount Rushmore. <laughs> yes, yeah. or exactly. And but that's exciting, right? Like it's exciting to know that people in the past were flawed and were fascinating and you know, he could be married to a woman, but the love of his life could be a man. Like that's kind of fascinating and cool and interesting. And it, it makes history so much more real. And I, I may be completely wrong on this, but I remember over the years hearing that about 10% of the population for ever has been queer on some level, like pretty consistently. Yeah, I mean, the I numbers are sort of, the numbers are all over the place. I mean, right now, I mean, it, so much of it too is about like, but you know, how safe do you feel? 
How safe do you feel answering the question of the surveyor? Right. Um, you know, what are they going to do with that information? Uh, are there going to be lists with your name on it? Like, there's a lot of trust involved in like getting a real number. Mm -hmm. So the numbers actually are are all over the place. But you know, yes, between like five and twelve percent are the numbers I've generally seen. Um, we do know that now it's a little higher. Um, I mean, like you know, the generation uh, that of kids that are in like junior and high school right mm -hmm. now it's it seems like it's one in five kids um and, which is kind of amazing and i think you know having kids that are that age i think that that's in part because well two things one in general there's more acceptance from their peers and two i think some of that is that we are more aware of that continuum of like straight to gay you know, kind of the Kinsey scale. For those of you out there that don't know, Kinsey was a psychologist a million years ago. Well, like a hundred years, I don't know, 60 years or 70. I, sometimes I'm like the 19, somebody was like, you were born in the 1900s. And I was like, I feel personally attacked by that statement. Um, but somebody he, recently said that that a book about people in the 80s was historical fiction. I'm like, well, excuse me. <laughs> I was alive. Um but I know that he he came up with this idea that we are all on a continuum, that very few people are 100% straight or 100% gay, that there's some fluidity in there. And I think our young people are more aware of that kind of fluidity that we we might have and that exists in the world. Um, and yeah, and I, I just just. To, to, to piggyback on that, I think it's not just about who you're attracted to. I think we're also recognizing that gender, um, the way that we've conceptualized gender in our culture is mm -hmm. very weird and very specific with this idea that like, depending on your body parts, you only have one possible path ahead for you um, is, I think the younger generation acknowledges how messed up that is and how mm -hmm. untrue it is. And what's fascinating is that um, when you go into, when you actually look at history, it's full of examples of people who lived outside gender boundaries. Yes. And that is very empowering as well. Um, and we, it's like, I don't know, it's like we try to perpetuate this cultural amnesia to prevent people from knowing that there are other ways of living and it just tends to isolate people. And I think that it's that's the backwards way of going about it. That's not how you keep kids safe. And so, like, you know, your book has been banned in several schools, libraries, yeah. as as being obscene in nature was one of the the quotes that I found. Yeah. So, what makes your book obscene versus like this book that my daughter just read for school? It's John Steinbeck's The Pearl, which is full of violence, domestic violence, greed, murder, all the things. So what makes yours obscene in nature, but not John Steinbeck's book? Well, I would argue that there's nothing obscene about learning real history, um, especially when it is appropriately, you know, it's not, it's pretty PG. I mean, I wrote my book for ages 11 and up. Uh, there is no, I mean, there is, violence there's you know because well because there are some people again weren't perfect right these aren't these aren't paragons of virtue these are human beings and 
In fact, I thought that was really interesting. I discovered some really disturbing stuff about some of the people in history that I profile. And I kept it in the book because I thought, well, this is interesting. And I trust that kids can, you know, accept the fact that people are complicated. There's this one character from 1600 in Spain who was raised in a convent and ended up uh, escaping, dressed as a man, uh, went to Central America and South America and basically in, embodied all the worst parts of toxic masculinity of Spanish culture at that time and was known and, and then was like murdered a few people and, you know, was involved in these horrible battles where they, you know, just, just you know, ex- killed a lot of native people. And then um, when they were caught for like the third murder of a, of a European uh, person, um, they revealed that in fact, that they revealed their secret to avoid being you know, uh, tried for murder, um, that they had been born with a woman's body and they became world famous at the time um, and were called the Lieutenant Nun because they had been actually promoted to Lieutenant because of heroism in, in that battle. Um, they were kind of a horrible human being. They ended up coming back to Europe. Uh, they got a special dispensation from the Pope to continue dressing as a man for the rest of their life. Um, fascinating, fascinating story, but not exactly like, you know, a role yeah. model, but so interesting, right? So, I mean, when you say like, you know, so I think there's no way that the people that are ban- behind all the book banning, they can't put the genie back in the bottle. I mean, all their kids probably have smartphones and with the right. internet. And it's like, wow, there are a lot of people that are openly queer or gender queer today. Um, you know, from Demi Lovato to Ellen DeGeneres to Ricky Martin. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to believe that you're alone in the world as a queer person today. Having said that, if they can erase history, then you feel sort of unmoored. And like, oh, I'm the very first guy to like like other guys in the history of the world, which is exactly how I felt growing up. Um, so, you know, to to read the stories about, you know, the Gandhi, what the love of Gandhi's life was another man, Herman Kallenbach. Like, I didn't know that. Nobody taught me that in school. And yet you read the letters between them, the love contract between them where they pledge this is crazy. Okay, I'm going to read you a quote because oh, it's sorry. just um, it's just so amazing. So at one point, um, and they had nicknames for each other in their letters. And so at one point, um, uh, Herman is going back to, Herman was a German Jew who lived in South Africa where they met and was very involved in helping Gandhi with the nonviolent protest movement. Um, and at one point, um, Herman is going to London and by himself. And so Gandhi, who was a lawyer, drops up a contract, like a, like a basically a re- relationship contract with all the promises of what Herman will do. And they had nicknames. So Herman was lower house and um, Gandhi was upper house. And um, after listing like the seven things that, that Herman promises to do, uh, they, they pledge this. The consideration for all the above tasks imposed by Lower House on himself, Herman, is more love and yet more love between the two houses. Such love as they hope the world has not seen. 
In witness whereof the parties hereto solemnly affix their signatures in the presence of the maker of all this 29th day of July. Like, what? Beautiful, though. I mean, it's beautiful. It's like, it's so beautiful and so exciting. And then, so when I went about wanting to write a book about history, I thought, I remember history for me sounded boring. So I was like, how do I write a book about history that's like chocolate, like not medicine? How do I make it fun? And how do I make it interesting? And I thought, well, I don't even want to read a book that the entire thing is about Abraham and Joshua. Like that sounds kind of a little dull. But then I started thinking about the fact that none of it was taught to me in school. And I started thinking about all the other stories I I started collecting about women who loved women like Eleanor Roosevelt. And that, you know, yeah, she was married to FDR, but she had the decades long relationship with Lorraine Hickok, who was the first woman to have a byline on the front page of the New York Times. Um, But like their relationship, it's so amazing. And like they wrote thousands of letters back and forth to each other. And it was just like, it's so the love is again, not CSI history, but like looking for love. There is so much evidence. And then people are like, well, you know, there were women and they, they were elegant and they wore pearls. They couldn't have actually like been physically intimate with each other, but you actually read the letters. And it, even though lots of the letters were burned after Eleanor died uh, by a friend, it's still pretty clear that they were, um, you know, uh, physically intimate with each other, um, which again is less interesting that, that they were being in love, but um, you know, it's kind of, there was one letter, hold on, I'm trying to find it. It was, uh, you know, she she's talking about um, uh, Hick darling. This is Eleanor writing Hick. Oh, how good it was to hear your voice. It was so inadequate to try and tell you what it meant. Jimmy, her, her son was near and I couldn't say je t'aime et je t'adore. I love you and I adore you as I long to, but always remember I am saying it and that I go to sleep thinking of you and repeating our little saying. Oh, and that was um, from the White House that she wrote that letter. Like it gets so interesting. And so the big epiphany for me was realizing that maybe this isn't just footnotes in history. Maybe it's not just, you know, interesting that Eleanor Roosevelt was in love with another woman or interesting that Gandhi was in love with another man. Maybe it's actually more foundational to the fact that these people changed our world. You know, the fact that Eleanor Roosevelt loved another woman may have had a lot to do with her compassion for Black people and her determination to pass the Universal Declaration of Human Rights through the UN. Maybe Gandhi came about his, you know, famous line about like, you pray facing one way and I pray facing the other. Why should we become enemies for that reason? Maybe his being in love with a Jewish guy had something to do with that too. And then suddenly history starts to open up like a flower and you're like, whoa, all this stuff is blooming and is so interesting. And I think that is the important part is that queer people have impacted history in huge ways. And yet, well, you know, maybe we don't, you know, we're not like, oh, this person was straight, right? Like whoever. Um, but when we ignore a huge part of who someone is, we do a disservice to understanding who they are and what shaped their experiences and why they did some of the things they did. Um, Absolutely. And 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 then we look, you know, we tell 
kids today, oh, well, this is brand new. Like, you know, oh, all this, all this gender nonconformity, you know, it's, uh, it's like you're inventing it. No, they're not inventing it. I mean, Hatshepsut was a pharaoh in Egypt, you know, more yes. than 2000 years ago, who basically over the course of 22 years completely changed their public presentation of their gender from basically daughter of the king and wife of the king. And then the, her, her half brother died because that's what they did back then. They didn't know about like, you know, the danger of marrying your siblings. Um, they wanted to keep the bloodline pure, um, you know to basically uh, becoming regent for her nephew who was only two years old while she was 16. Um, and then five years into that sort of uh, regency, declaring herself co-king. And then you start to see that the sculptures start changing of Hatshepsut and um, from being presented completely feminine, starting to look a little masculine, wearing men's clothing, um, the breasts sort of in between women's breasts and a man's chest, uh, the face sort of squaring out. And then towards the end uh, of, of their uh, reign, they were portrayed completely as a man, squared shoulders, pecs, muscles, false beard. It was so fascinating. Um, there's a great book for adults by Dr. Kara Cooney, and I quote in it, uh, in this book, there, so in Egyptian art of that time, women were, the sculptures of women were painted yellow because they sort of stayed indoors. And the sculptures of men were painted this sort of red because they went outside and I guess they got tan. And um, that was it. Those are the only two colors that were, people were painted, you know, that were portrayed. Um, but for Hatshepsut, there's a whole in-between phase where the sculptures are painted orange. Like what? That is so incredible. You know, and I, I also think like in um, native cultures, right? Like indigenous cultures, even here in America and other places, there are people that are kind of non-binary, whatever that looks like and whatever it's called in those cultures. But they were revered highly as kind of this, you know, they they have it all sort of. Place. Yeah, and 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 it's so true. There's a chapter on uh, Weiwa. So so the book uh, No Way They Were Gay. It's basically three sections. It's sort of men who love men and women who love women, and that includes people who sort of loved out, you know, ir irrespective of gender. And then uh, a section on people who lived outside gender boundaries or the gender binary as we see it. Um, and uh, there's a chapter on Weiwa, who was a member of the Zuni nation and kind of became really famous, went to Washington, D.C. as a princess of the Zuni nation. Um, and then when it was revealed that um, that they did not have a female body, there was all huge backlash. And it was sort of a big joke that had been pulled on Washington uh, society. And um, it was really tragic. But there's this trap that I think we fall into, the people that are not native fall into when we think about native culture um, and, and native nations as it, we, we slip into past tense. And I think that that's also a, 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 oh, a yeah. fault of our educational system because these cultures are alive today. They've survived and it's incredible. And I have a quote from uh, 2015 from a Native American elder who spoke at a Montana Two-Spirit Society gathering. Uh, the medicine wheel represents men on one side and women on the other, but there's a space in between that is for the two spirits. 
We join the men and women and complete the circle. That is our place in life. That is the creator's purpose for us. That is also beautiful that we're, and I'm, I'm just here, you know, there's, there's so much support in that statement of just who you are. Like, and we all, we, we need each other to be complete and whole almost. And that we belong, right? That queer people belong. I feel like we can feel so isolated because we're we're often raised in families that aren't like us. And um, you know, my parents were straight, and you know, it was they didn't really know how to what to do with a queer son. And so it's it's very comforting to know that queerness is not new, and that we have this incredible heritage and legacy of of stories and I, I i was so blown away by the some of the history that i learned and i literally kept saying no way they were gay and and that's how we got the title of the book because i was like you know after saying it like the 15th time i was like hmm, that's probably They're, a good book title it's, it's a great title you know i think back to uh, this was 20 ish years ago um, my first grown-up job out of grad school was um, the director of a nonprofit AIDS hospice. And so, you know, in the very early 2000s, that meant fundraising with gay men almost exclusively. Um, and I remember with my my ex-husband and I were on our way home and he said to me in a very like curious way, I just, I don't understand why they would choose to be gay with the way that, you know, they could be persecuted was kind of the, the gist of the conversation. And I just remember looking at him and I said, well, when did you choose to be straight? Thank you. you. (laughs) See, like you could see the, the wheels turning and he was like, I, I didn't. And I was like, then, there you go. And I think that that's important is that I I don't feel personally, my personal opinion is that our gender or our sexuality, whatever that looks like, that's not exactly a choice that we make. Like perhaps it's a choice how we present ourselves to the world, but who we are is not a conscious choice. Yeah, I think the choice becomes, are you going to be authentic or are you going to not, are you going to hide? And so with that, like authentic hide, when these books are banned in places, especially where children can find them, maybe without a parent there curating what they're reading, I'm thinking, you know, library or things like that. What what does that say to these young people when we are removing all the books about them from these places. Oh, it, it, it's telling them that they, they should retreat back to the closet. That, that um, I, I think this is all connected, right? Like all, this huge movement. And it's not just books about queer uh, characters and, and, and real people. It's about Black people. It's about Indigenous people. It's this is like a pendulum swing moment. And and Mm -hmm. unfortunately it's swinging in the direction of like, wait, uh, you know, the, the people that already have a place at the table, sort of straight, 
white, wealthy, able-bodied men are right. like, wait, 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 wait. We, we don't want to lose our place at the table. It's like, chill, dude. Like, we're going to build a bigger table. Uh, <laughs> I I just think that like so much of it comes down to this idea that like, oh, we're going to keep kids safe from this information because that will prevent them from maybe not turning out how we hope. But that's just completely bullshit. I mean, so like, again, they have smartphones, they know these people exist. So by taking the books away, what we're doing, books are like empathy machines, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you read a book, you, you kind of like can emotionally connect with the, the, the people in the book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. So by taking the books away, they're trying to like, to prevent people from having empathy and not just for when you recognize yourself, like Dr. Rudith Sims Bishop said, like, this is about like mirrors and windows and sliding glass doors. I mean, books give you access to other people's lives that are different than you and help you kind of resonate emotionally because you see a reflection of the humanity in them, in you. I mean, that's why books are so powerful. And, you know, Banning books is a way of trying to control something that is is uncontrollable. And basically, you're not preventing people from being there. Well, you're preventing them from feeling safe. And this goes back to Bayard Rustin. And uh, so Bayard Rustin was this openly gay Black man who was really active in the civil rights movement. And he actually taught Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. about nonviolent protest. And um, he's kind of one of my heroes. He, he was really amazing guy. He organized the famous March on Washington where um, Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech in 1963. Um, Bayard said this, in, it, it, he was interviewed in 1986. The job of the gay community is not to deal with extremists who would castrate us or put us on an island and drop an H-bomb on us. The fact of the matter is there is a small percentage of people in America who understand the true nature of the homosexual community. There's another small percentage who will never understand us. Our job is not to get those people who dislike us to love us, nor was our aim in the civil rights movement to get prejudiced white people to love us. Our aim was to try to create the kind of America legislatively, morally, and psychologically such that even though some whites continue to hate us, they could not openly manifest that hate. That's our job today, to control the extent to which people can publicly manifest anti-gay sentiment. And that was almost 40 years ago, but let me tell you, that's our job today still. Like Mm. we've gone the other way, like publicly manifesting Uh the anti-gay and the anti-black and the like racism has gotten this sort of like hall pass in the last few years, especially from our previous president Trump, it's almost like it's okay to be a racist, like make America great again is really make America racist again. Um, And so we have to kind of get us back to controlling people's manifestation of their hate. We can't change everybody's mind, but we can try to create the kind of America, you know, uh, psychologically, legislatively, morally, where it's not cool to manifest your hate. And I, th- I I believe, and I may be wrong, that recently, was it Florida that banned um, 
drag shows. Maybe it was a different state. Uh, there, there are so but, many. Are but there was one that, that banned drag shows because those might be dangerous. But going to a KKK rally is still totally legal and not problematic at all. Sure. Let's let's, you know, because, and, you know, and, and this is the gun conversation, too. All right. Like. Guns are killing kids, but, you know, I, no, no We're, kids died. At, it's died kind of like, hey, look over here. Show. Right. So we don't actually look at the the issues that are, are going on. And like it's. I, I was talking to some friends and it was like, OK, if I had now my kids are older, but my when my kids were little. If I was told you need to leave your kids alone with a room full of drag queens or a room full of straight white men, they're going drag to the queens. drag queens every freaking time, every time. Um, because I, I mean, I genuinely think that they would be safer, and, and that's. 100%. And I think that that's another kind of misconception, and and I don't want to get too much into it, but that child molesters that pedophiles are gay men the no, reality is they're not like certainly there are some and certainly there are straight you know and they're straight women and there are gay women i'm not but it is certainly not the majority um are gay men and i think that those narratives also that the gay men are dangerous especially to children is just it's wild to me. And one thing, you know, that you and I kind of mentioned before this was the importance of having supportive people in, in just youth's lives in general, but specifically queer lives. Because for those of you that don't know, queer youth are about four times more likely to attempt suicide. That's according to the Trevor Project than their count their peers. Um, and that's a really big difference, huge. Um, and so there's that important piece of having someone that cares about you and is safe. Yeah, I, there's a, a cool statistic, the human rights campaign came out with it that um, uh, queer youth who have at least one accepting adult in their life were 40% less likely to attempt suicide, which that's huge. I mean, that like just think that that's one per one person listening can be an accepting person in a kid's life and really change, save a life, change the outcome. That's amazing. And, and also, I want to. I'm gonna take a little step in another direction. The I grew up in the Christian church. I grew up, you know, my dad was a minister. Now my dad was like a whole different kind of minister, and that like. He fought to have gay men and women in the Presbyterian church be ordained in the mid nineties. I mean, I grew up in a weird, you know, <laughs> a weird Christian household by some standards, but this whole like message of um, hate the sin, love the sinner, um, or, uh, you know, this like, oh, I love them. I just don't love their behavior. And for me, when I hear like their behavior, I'm like, you mean who they are, like at their core, um, or like, you know, I'm fairly familiar with the Bible, um, both New and Old Testament, 
And it was several years ago, I was at a, a festival, music festival here, and a man had tattooed, this is important, he had tattooed on his arm, one shall not lay with a man as one lays with a woman. And then the, you know, Leviticus, what? And oh, the pain in my heart, because for those of you that don't know, it's also in Leviticus that you should not alter your body. And so it's a cherry picking kind of piece of biblical law. Alter with, your body like get a tattoo. Right, exactly. So like you got a tattoo from the same group of laws, right? Like it's... Right. I think there's also something about like, you're not supposed to like mix materials. Like you should cotton and cotton and and you know lycra linen or whatever whatever they had back then it's you know and and i think that that's that that religion has been used um has been weaponized and i don't just mean like i mean yes for queer individuals but also on so many other levels and church is supposed to be supposed to be and and this is from my experience growing up like the safe place that you go to um that was you know how i was raised in in the church and it it breaks my heart that these places whether it's school or church or community center these young people are not getting that support and that love for exactly who they are. Um, I often have told people in my life when they've come out to me, like, cool, I'm not in your bedroom, so it doesn't really affect me. Like, you know, I, I wanna support you. I care who you love. I care that they treat you well, but like, I'm not watching you in your bedroom. So that, it doesn't matter that much to me. Again, I want you to be loved and cared for. And yes, it's part of who you are, but that doesn't define you fully. There's so many facets to who people are. And I just hate that this has become such a, well, if you are queer, then you must be whatever it is. You know, it's... Yeah, and that comes back to the idea of homo love you right? Like yes. If, if we could focus on love, it, we'd, we'd be having better or kinder conversations. And I, yes. And I think for me, and and I'm going to go back to being Christian for a second, being Christian means I live in a Christ-like way. And Christ was very clear. Most important commandment is to love God. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. From these two, all others hang. That's what Jesus said. And if Jesus said, like, it's our job to love I think it's important to love others as ourselves, which also means that we're supposed to love ourselves. I think that's an important piece of that, you know, scripture. But, you know, so you talked about like that love and support piece, just a supportive adult um, making a shift and and how our youth are experiencing themselves. It's a safe place. Um and so do you, and you may not, do you have other resources that young people can reach out to or that I can share with our 
audience? Yeah, I, I think the Trevor Project is a great uh, resource. They have a, sort of like a chat function. They have a ability to call somebody and talk. I mean, I'm not a therapist. Um, you know, I, I, I right. don't, don't call me. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, do I mean, I, what I'm trying to do is trying, uh, trying to provide to bring these voices from the past forward and let us all know that we have this amazing legacy. Uh, the, 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 the one story I wanna leave you with that kind of really blew my mind was yes. learning about Sappho, who was this poet in, in, um, in ancient Greece. And uh, you know, back then poets were like rock stars. They mm -hmm. performed their, their poetry, like spoken word, like, you know, a Def Jam spoken yes. word event. <laughs> and, they uh, accompanied themselves on a on a on an instrument uh, called a, a lyre, L Y R E, and um, anyway, Sappho was really famous for being a woman that was an incredible poet, um, and all the poets back then really celebrated uh, again toxic masculinity. They would sell. They said the most beautiful thing on the earth is a fleet of warships and men marching off to battle and uh, cavalry charging. Uh, Sappho wrote a poem that much of it survived uh, to today uh, where she was saying that from her perspective, the most beautiful thing on the earth is love because she would rather see the face of the woman she loves, Anactoria, flashing radiant than all the force of Lydian chariots and their infantry and full display of arms. So she like actually flipped the script on what was the most important and the most beautiful thing in the in the world. And Sappho became quite famous for her poems about loving other women. And this poem in particular really caught on and shaped how people felt about the world because it resonated for them, right? They were like, well, wait, the most important thing for me as a human being isn't it isn't the war, it's it's the my family, the people I love, people I care about. And so that kind of shaped the culture that we live in today. You know, 800 years ago when, you know, the, the fairy tale Sleeping Beauty was written, what was the thing that broke the evil spell? It was the kiss of true love. And that actually goes all the way back to Sappho loving Anactoria. And so now today we have all these Disney movies where, you know, kiss the girl and, you know, um, you, you know, the, the, the kiss of true love, breaking the evil spell, we believe all pretty much universally now in our culture, we believe that love is the most powerful thing in the universe. And we believe it because Sappho loved this other woman, Anactoria. And I think that is amazing and super cool. I think that's amazing too. And what a great note to end on that love is the most important thing in the world. So Lee, thank you so much for joining me and sharing some really amazing history and fun facts. Um, I, I learned a lot. And so I hope my audience did as well. Thanks, Amanda. I really appreciate um, the safe space to have the conversation. Thank you. And um, if you were interested in finding more about Lee and his books and other interesting queer uh, histories and other queer writers, um, you can visit his website is super simple, leewind.org. And I'm going to link that in the show notes, as well as a few of the other things he mentioned, such as the Trevor Project. And with that, we have reached the end of today's episode. So thank you for listening and learning more about how mental health and society meet. 
Now go out and open up a conversation and discover how mental health is experienced in your world. You can find more episodes of The Mental Society in all the places you find your favorite podcast. And please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on anything. You can find additional resources and articles by visiting our website, thementalsociety.com. And remember that you are not alone in your struggles. Hope and help are all around you. Until next time, this is Amanda Dolan, wishing you good health, mental and otherwise.